Hello, my name is Eric Holmberg, Director of Real to Real Ministries, and I want to introduce you to one of the most important video projects we've ever been involved with. This presentation is designed to provide a training curriculum to help spark a New American Reformation, a Neo-Puritan revival within the church that will inspire Christians everywhere to re-engage the culture, most specifically in the arena of public policy, with the glorious message of Christ's Lordship over the nations of the earth. In the course of this video series, we'll be examining a number of very important and controversial issues. What does the Bible mean when it says that we are no longer under law, but under grace? What application does the Old Testament law have in the New Covenant? Can we legislate morality? Did a Christian philosophy influence America's form of civil government? What about the separation of church and state? Is there really such a thing as religious neutrality? What would a nation truly under God look like? These questions are of concern to Christians, yet all thinking Americans today are concerned in some way or another by the growing signs of our nation's moral decay. The very foundations of our governmental structures are being shaken to the core. Many are wondering if we will survive as a free nation far into the new millennium. There is no doubt that America is in the midst of a grave crisis. Whether or not the church responds with the correct answers will determine the future of our nation. Who is to be the ultimate authority in our national affairs? Should it be the Supreme Court, the Congress, the President, the majority will of the people, the opinions of the television news pundits, the latest poll, the Washington Post and the New York Times, or some combination of these. Many Christians are appealing to our Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, or the Christian history of the United States to provide a moral blueprint for reconstruction in America. While these appeals have great value, they lack the authority that is uniquely found in the Bible. Therefore, in attempting to answer these questions, we explicitly and without apology use the Word of God. As King David said in the second psalm, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And the Lord's response, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus Christ is pictured here as the ruling King, the Son of God the Father, who has been given the nations for an inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for His possession. It's important to realize that Jesus Christ is portrayed here as the present King, ruling with a rod of iron over the kings of the earth, and who, through His death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification, is now the locus of all power and authority, both in heaven and on earth. Restoring the crown rights of King Jesus is the theme of this presentation. To this end, we interviewed several Christian leaders who were involved in the work of revival and reformation. We called the best from these interviews into short programs covering a variety of questions. While it will take you a little over 20 minutes to view each program, we suggest that you approach this material as strong meat that needs time to be digested. 
The best method for learning this material is to systematically study each of the ten programs separately, preferably in a small group. You're encouraged to take notes as though it were a live seminar. Read the short articles and interviews with the Christian leaders in the study booklet. Then answer the discussion questions as a group or use them in your own personal Bible study or devotions. We hope that as you do this, you'll be impressed by an important fact. There is another king, one Christ Jesus, who's enthroned in heaven as the ruler over the nations. Jesus Christ has been given the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. While someone limit the rule of Christ over the nations to some future dispensation, the Bible clearly teaches that he rules today and that his law has a broad application in society. And we, his people, have the responsibility to take the role of stewards of his authority and seek to rule wisely as his ambassadors and representatives on earth. May we commit ourselves, by the grace of God, to pray for and diligently work towards the restoration of the crown rights of Jesus Christ. As we do this, we will begin to see once again the reformation of all aspects of our culture according to the infallible word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and to the glory of the triune God. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 6.14, For you are not under the law, but under grace. How to interpret exactly what this means has been a source of confusion for many Christians. When discussing the law of God versus the grace of God, we often hear, I'm not under the law, or I'd rather err on the side of liberty than on the side of legalism. Yet these statements belie a basic misunderstanding of the relationship between law and grace. When many Christians speak of grace or Christian liberty, they're often advocating a license to sin or an anti-law view known as antinomianism that is clearly condemned in scripture. Even among those Christians who believe that the law of God is a standard for moral behavior, very few can even name all of the Ten Commandments. This prevailing ignorance of the law of God among Christians has led to a plague of moral relativism among non-believers. I believe in what's true for me, but I don't believe in an absolute truth for everyone. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, thy neighbor's manservant. Monogamy gets again into laws that society chooses to make. Um, when the Bible was written, the Ten Commandments were written, monogamy was not the norm. Adultery, thou shalt not bear false witnesses. Uh, truth is related to the individual. I don't think there is a truth for everyone, that, you know, a standard truth. Um, I think it just is based on what an individual believes and what an individual feels. Likewise, when many Christians speak of the law, what they are referring to is not the moral law of God, but a system of legalism or traditions devised by men. This confusion has arisen due to the lack of basic definitions. We have the twin heresies of legalism on one hand and antinomianism on the other, which have appeared in the church as counterfeits to true law and true grace. Legalism can be defined in two ways. One, that obedience to the law is the means by which we are saved. Or, two, 
when rules or traditions of men are instituted as a standard of righteousness. The idea that man is able to keep the law under his own power and please God is biblically false. Salvation is a gift of God, and we are saved by God's own choosing, not our own. When we say as Christians that we are not under the law, scripturally, we can mean two things. Number one, that we are not under the law as a means of obtaining salvation. And two, we're not under the condemnation or the curse of the law. We asked our panel of experts the following question. What does the Bible mean when it says that we are no longer under law, but under grace? You know, I think on an individual level, the average serious Christian really wants to glorify God. Uh, even those who have never heard of the Westminster Confession, you know, they, they, they want to glorify God. They, they want to be holy. They want to be sanctified. They, they want to be spiritually healthy. Uh, but the whole American evangelical milieu is so subjective uh, and existential that they have no concept whatsoever of, of, of how to do that. There's no objective standard. They, you know, uh, okay, you love Jesus and you pray and, and you feel good toward others and, uh, you know, uh, you, you, maybe you give a tithe to your local church, but, but you don't know if you're pleasing God or not other than your own subjective feelings. And, of course, they, they can lie to you. Here's the law of God. Either you're obeying it or not. You know, and, and yeah, there's a lot to be said for uh, are you obeying it, you know, just uh, with an act of your will or is your, your heart really into it as well? Uh, but, but I think, of course, as you do obey it, your, your heart kind of follows. But uh, that aside, I, I think that it does give us an objective standard to evaluate our actions as individuals or, you know, the institutions. And it, and it keeps us from uh, second guessing. Uh, from false judgments, false steps. We cannot and would never be justified by obedience to the law. We can't keep the law perfectly. Uh, the law lets us know that very quickly. Uh, but as a, a standard of holiness, uh, that's a, an entirely different conversation. Take the other side of the argument. If you say that the law is not relevant for the Christian, okay, well then, uh, uh, you know, what about adultery? What about thievery? What about uh, uh, issues like homosexuality, what about abortion, what about uh, all these things that the law of God so obviously speaks to, uh, the Christian is less left, excuse me, uh, defenseless, directionless, standardless uh, if he rejects the law of God. Uh, there's no way to make these um, judgment calls, so to speak in the life of an individual or a culture. But I actually think there's an incredible amount of freedom. I mean, God gives you only 10 commandments. Man's the one that gives you, you know, 50 zillion on every, you know, whether you can breathe or what you wash your hair with or what you can eat and not eat. And, you know, next thing you know, they're going to be outlawing cholesterol and I can't go to Wendy's to have a good hamburger or something, you know. But if you follow the law of God, the liberty and the freedom that is available is absolutely incredible. So the notion of being under grace and not law is something that not, is, is not be underestimated or undermined. But what is it that Paul is saying? We are not saved nor justified by law. We are justified by faith in Christ. It is his finished work alone that secures our redemption. However, how is it that we're to live our lives? 
Is it by every whim or every fancy of our own wicked heart, a deceitful heart, by the way, that we cannot know? Uh, perhaps it's a dream or a revelation, but you know, you can have a bad meal and get some powerful dreams and revelation, and that is not moral law from on high. The law of God has not passed away uh, in terms of our guide for life and godliness. Jesus himself said that not one jot nor tittle will pass away until all things are fulfilled. And so Christ as the fulfillment of the law gives us the grace which is divine almighty power made effective on our behalf. He gives us the grace to live according to the law, not to transgress the law. We see in Romans 6, 1, shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And how is it that we know that we sin? We have an immutable, unchanging standard, God's law. And so the ideas and the notions of our conduct that are inscripturated in the law of God, they're not options, they're commands. And they've not been nullified or bridged in any way by Christ's finished work. In fact, now that law is written upon our heart and our minds and we're given grace to follow hard after them in a way that was not possible in the old dispensation. Of course, Christianity is ultimately personal and intimate. We come by the finished work of Jesus Christ into a living, real, and vital relationship with God. The creation can touch the Creator, the Christ. That, that brings joy unspeakable and full of glory. There can be no doubt. But then what? This personal, vital, and real relationship must be manifest. The Great Commission says that we are to be a witness unto all nations, and we are to teach those nations all the things that Christ did depict and declare. And that means we are to enforce and declare and disciple the nations, every tribe, every kindred, every ethnic grouping, under and according to God's law. And so the idea that our religion is only personal is actually heretical. Uh, that's an ancient heresy called Gnosticism, where they said that the material world was evil and the unseen world was innately spiritual. And that's why so many Christians in that era, and even today, don't have a proper view, for example, of sexuality, the family, the role of the church, their role in society, and even the idea of work and creating wealth. They think the material world is evil, and therefore they must cultivate spiritual monastic ideas to be closer to Christ. But, but the idea of being close to Christ, the chosen fast of God, is to go out and set at liberty the captives. So whether that's preaching the gospel to men so that they may be redeemed, or whether that means going into the civil realm as a, uh, a politician and declaring the crown rights of Jesus Christ there and ruling diligently according to the law of God, or whether that means being a homeschooling mom and raising a generation of champions for Jesus Christ. At every realm, Christ, the expression of the gospel, his life is real, it is vital, and therefore it must have an outward flow. There are well-meaning Christians who say, we're not under the law. Why are you talking about the law? We're under grace. Well, wait, 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 wait. Obviously, for the means of salvation, we're under grace, and we're saved by faith, not by the works of the law. But don't be so quick to write the law off. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, by faith do we nullify the law? God forbid. We establish the law. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul said that the law is not for the righteous. The law is for the wicked. And he went on the list, you know, murderers, man-stealers, the law is still for today when it comes to its behavioral aspects. It's still wrong to be involved in theft and murder and adultery and bestiality and homosexuality. You can't just throw out the law. And, well, they'll say, well, Jesus said just love your neighbor and love God. Absolutely. 
but that's the summation of the law. You don't know how to love God and to love your neighbor unless you look to the law to define it. So, Paul said it best. He said, to those who are without law, I became like somebody without law, but not being without law myself. He said, I'm still under the law of Christ. The moral mandates of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, they're still binding on all of us. There's a proverb that says, do not rebuke a fool, lest thou be like unto him. But then the one right after it says, rebuke a fool in his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So, when Christians try and take Bible verses out of context to justify or to vindicate retreat and cowardice, I say to them, wait a minute, the Bible says Jesus is, a, is the Prince of Peace. The Bible also says that the Lord is a man of war. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. We need to be like the early church, of whom it was said, uh, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They weren't greeted by the Chamber of Commerce and a key to the city. They were greeted by conflict, controversy, sometimes a beating and a key to the jail. So if we truly want to be like the early church, we're going to have to be involved in conflict and controversy. My observation is that a lot of Christian leaders want to run from the three C's of conflict, controversy, and confrontation in order to embrace the three C's of comfort, cowardice, and compromise. In America's history, those who are self-conscious enemies of Christianity have often used the banner of Christianity or Christian words, phrases, mercy, kindness, brotherly love, our Christian duty. They've used it when it suited them. But my observation has been they mean something else when they say mercy or kindness or brotherly love or Christian duty. Now it's come to the point where you have people saying it's our Christian duty to embrace the homosexual movement. And this of course is absurd because a Christianity that is in conflict with the scriptures isn't Christianity at all. So we as Christians must remember the scriptures are the first and last word on what Christianity is, what Christianity does, what Christianity believes, and what we as Christians have a duty to do. If it squares with the scripture, let's go. If it's in conflict with the scripture, then it's heresy. Christians have wrestled um, since the first century with the question of, of uh, the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, the continuity between the two, uh, where there might be discontinuities. Uh, clearly, the Bible uh, claims authority for every word, every jot, every tittle. Jesus makes it clear that there is not one word of all of the scriptures that has in any way passed uh, from, from authority or applicability in the life of the believer. So, so in that sense, there's absolute continuity. The Apostle Paul wrote to his young disciple, Timothy, and said, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There were no scriptures other than the Old Testament scriptures when the Apostle Paul said that. Uh, the, the Gospels had not yet been written. The letters were still uh, floating about as, uh, as small epistles to individual churches. The canon of the New Testament had not been gathered together. So the Apostle Paul clearly stated that the scriptures of the Old Testament 
We're useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Authoritative. God breathed. In that sense, there is no discontinuity. In another sense, there is an absolute discontinuity, for we have a new and better covenant in Jesus Christ. Everything in all of history changes at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the fulcrum upon which all of history turns. And so we see that, uh, that through the cross, uh, we see both the new and the old covenants in a totally new light, in a, in a totally new perspective. The Old Testament and its standards are by no means abrogated, and yet they are transformed by the grace and the mercy of God. It works simply like this. The law of God is the tutor or the schoolmaster that leads us to Jesus Christ. And in Christ, and by His grace, and in His mercy, and in that alone, do we have the power uh, to, to live before God righteously and with the cloak of, uh, of Christ's perfection draped across our shoulders. The Westminster Confession, which is one of the great Reformation standards, uh, divides the Old Testament law up into the civil law, the uh, moral law, and the ceremonial law. And, uh, and, and that's a good, helpful distinction uh, between the various aspects of, of the Old Testament law. For instance, we today do not sacrifice cows. Um, we don't come before the Lord uh, and sacrifice lambs um, as payment for our sin because we have had a greater, more perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God, uh, the great sacrifice of God, Jesus Christ. And so it is helpful to, to make distinctions between the moral, the ceremonial, and, the, and the, the civil law. At the same time, when you look in the Old Testament, um, those laws are so intertwined that they are very difficult to separate sometimes. Oftentimes, there are all three in a single sentence. And, uh, and so you have to do some real exegetical gymnastics to get them uh, pried apart from uh, one another. Uh, so, so ultimately, what we have to do is, is we have to see that, that uh, some of the Old Testament law is, is easily applied to, to our time. We can, we can see it readily. Thou shalt not steal. Uh, there's no place in the New Testament that says that bestiality is a sin. A and yet there is hardly a Christian uh, walking on the face of the earth who would not say that, uh, that sexual relations with animals was not perverse and wicked and the denial of God's standards of righteousness for the believer. Uh, so, so there are some of those, those moral standards that are easily applied and brought over. What we have to do um, with difficulty is take the cross of Jesus Christ, the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, and bring that lens to all of the law, moral, civil, and ceremonial, and see the application of those things to, to our day. We, we can't take a cafeteria-style approach, start picking and choosing which parts of God's Word we, uh, we apply and which parts we do not. Covenantal thinking has all but disappeared. That's why in systematic theology I gave it particular space because it is foundational. The Bible is divided by two covenants. Really one covenant, the original one, renewed again and again and transferred 
in the New Testament from a nation to the church. The nation symbolized by 12 tribes, 12 apostles now in the church as the new Israel of God. And Paul refers to the church in Galatians 6.16 as the Israel of God. Well, this means that uh, we have a duty. We have to occupy the whole world. The Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations, to bring them all into the fold together with all their peoples because Christ is the ordained king of all creation. So we have a magnificent calling. And I don't believe God programmed us for defeat. We are a people called to victory, not to defeat. This is the victory, John tells us, that overcometh the world, even our faith. The grace of God means infinitely more than forgiveness of sin and unmerited favor. It also includes the victorious Christian life. Grace alone is the means of both our justification and our sanctification. Grace is both a covering for individual acts of sin, or our justification, and it provides the means of power over sin, or our sanctification. What does the law of God have to do with grace? Very much. How can we be saved unless we first know that we're sinners? This is why we need to preach the law of God to sinners in addition to preaching salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The Holy Spirit works through the moral law as a means of grace to bring sinners to salvation. The moral law of God always remains the measure of sanctification for the believer. And the law of God, when codified as a basis for civil law, restrains the passions of the sinner. To summarize what we've heard in this segment, the New Testament teaches us that the law has three purposes in the life of the believer and society. Number one, while we were sinners, it acted as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Number two, it's the standard of righteousness once we have been saved. And number three, the law as a civil code restrains the passions of the unconverted in society. Many people view law and grace as being opposites, but both are true and necessary as standards of true conversion. Ultimately, there is no contradiction between being bound to obey the moral law and being under grace. This right understanding of the relationship between law and grace is foundational to everything else that will be covered in this series on God's law and society.